Did you know that there have been more books written about Jesus in the last 20 years than in the previous 20 centuries? Obviously, Jesus is not a historical figure one can easily dismiss. People are still trying to fig figure out and make what to make of him, and the opinions are many and varied. Regardless of what people may think about Jesus, one thing is certain. Jesus had a flair for the dramatic. He taught the most profound truths, made the most audacious claims, performed the most amazing miracles, and his timing for drama was impeccable. The Jesus drama really begins, well, at the beginning, when, as the Apostle John puts it, the Word existed with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh taking on humanity and revealing God by tabernacling among us. Why? Because he loves us. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. So Jesus came from God, as God, with a mission, a rescue mission born of love. So question, did the people Jesus came to embrace him? By and large, no. However, to those who did receive him, to anyone who would embrace him and place their trust in him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. So here's the mega drama. Who in the world will embrace Jesus as Son of God and Savior and receive eternal life? And so in his gospel, John the Apostle very purposefully recounts for us a series of dramas within the drama. He wants to persuade us that Jesus is the Son of God and that if we believe in him, we will receive eternal life. Now, every good drama requires several elements, right? So tell me, what makes for good drama? Talk to me. Plot, conflict, romance, hero, fear, villain. Okay, so, very good. So, Every good drama requires players. We've got three Ps coming at you. So players, you've got to have people, hero and villain included. Got to have a plot. So wherever there's people, there's conflict, right? The deeper the conflict, the thicker the plot. And passion. Romance, perhaps, okay? Um, so especially conflict that's fueled by passion when emotions run high. And then there's a stage, the stage on which the drama plays out. So I want you to listen carefully for all of these elements in the drama, people, plot, passion, in John chapter 7. 
and see if you recognize any of your story in this story as it plays out on the biggest stage yet. John, chapter 7. After this, Jesus traveled to Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of booths. So his brothers said to him, you should leave here. Go to the festival in Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For not even his own brothers believed in him. Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go. But you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to the festival now because my appointed time has not yet come. And after saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There, were, uh, uh, there was a lot of discussion about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man. But others said, no, he isn't. He's nothing but a fraud. And... And he deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then midway between the festival, uh, Jesus went up to the temple courtyard and began to teach. The Jewish leaders were astonished and said, how does this man so, know so much when he has never had formal instruction? So Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Whoever wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory for themselves, but a person who speaks to honor the one who sent him speaks the truth and not lies. Didn't Moses give you his teachings? Yet not one of you does what Moses taught you. In fact, you are trying to kill me. The crowd replied, a demon is making you crazy. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus asked, answered them, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath too when you obey the law Moses gave you, about circumcision. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as not to break the law of Moses. So why are you angry with me? Because I made a man entirely well on the Sabbath. 
look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? But look at this, he's speaking in public and, and no one is saying anything to him. Can it be that the rulers really know that this man is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear and no one will know where he comes from. However, many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah when he comes to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? When the Pharisees heard the crowds whispering such things, they and the leading priests dispatched some temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. And you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled at the statement. Where is he going to go, they asked. What does he mean when he says, you cannot go where I am going? On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures declare, out of his heart will come rivers of living water. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. When the crowds heard him, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we have been expecting. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others said, but how can he be? How can the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and the Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We never heard anyone say such amazing things, they responded. Have you been led astray too, the Pharisees mocked? You don't see any of the leaders or any of us Pharisees believing in him, do you? But the rabble out there, they know nothing about the law. God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's even given a hearing, he asked. The Jewish leaders answered, ah, you must be from Galilee too. Search the scriptures. You will find nothing about a prophet coming from Galilee. 
All right. Thank you, Colleen. Did you feel the intensity? The conflict? Right. So, did you catch the elements of, of the drama? So, who are the players? Jesus, that's always the right answer. <laughs> okay. Pharisees, Nicodemus, the crowds, disciples, the brothers, okay? Um, so, brothers, they're the skeptics, okay? They don't believe in him. The crowds, they're still deciding. They're divided. Or maybe they're still counting the cost. The leaders, they're hostile. They just want to eliminate Jesus. So, think about it. Isn't that a lot like how people respond to Jesus today? Skeptic, the undecided, the hostile. You probably, you probably know some of these people. They may be in your family or your circle of friends. Chances are you were one of them at one time, or maybe still are. So by the way, this is the same cast of characters who in just six months' time will see Jesus crucified. Now doesn't that add intensity to the drama? So what's the plot? To kill Jesus. And the passion, did you see any emotion, anger, cold-hearted obsession, heroic grit? Mm, high passion. And the stage? It's in Jerusalem, at the temple during the Festival of Tabernacles. So, and, you know, there's so much to this story happening in the background, I just barely have time to scratch the surface. But if you love Jesus and you love drama, drama of the Gospels, there's any number of really good Jesus movies out there. And it just so happens this week, playing in the theater, is The Chosen. Anybody familiar with The Chosen? So I think between Rachel and me, we've probably, there you are, we've probably invited maybe 100 people. <laughs> so we're going 1.30 after church today. So The Chosen, it, it tracks the life of Jesus through the eyes of the disciples. Um, it's very imaginative, very dramatic, very powerful. So, yeah, you might, you might uh, get some tickets this week. Okay, so let's see how John sets up the story in, in chapter 7. Verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. Now let's get our bearings. So the Jewish nation is divided into two districts, the northern district, rural, conservative, backwards, hicks, okay? Southern district, that's the urban, progressive, uh, the cultural, political, and religious center for the Jews. This is where Jerusalem and the temple are located. He, Jesus, wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. Now there's the players in the plot. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of booths. Uh, not booths, booths or tabernacles. That's a lot easier. So his brothers, more players, said to him, you should leave here and go to the festival in Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. 
for not even his own brothers believed in him. So here's the skeptics, even antagonistic, as is often the case with family members and faith. The brothers taunt Jesus. And after, after he lost 90% of his following, that's how chapter 6 ends, uh, they dare him to go to Jerusalem and perhaps there recoup his losses. Verse 6, Jesus replied, Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. So remember, that's the mega drama. Jesus comes into the world revealing God who will embrace, who will reject, who will love, who will hate. Verse 8, you go on. I'm not going to this festival because my appointed time has not come. So right there, a touch of suspense. My appointed time. After, these, after saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee, but after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly, staying out of public view. So let's get the picture of this festival that's going on, and I need to put on historian's hat, and hopefully we've got some slides. There we go, perfect. So, on the Jewish calendar, there's three mandatory festivals. Passover in early spring, Pentecost, early summer, and tabernacles in the fall. Now, mandatory means that in Jesus' day, any male within 15 miles is required to participate. In addition, Jews from all around the world would make that pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. By the tens and hundreds of thousands, they would descend or actually ascend uh, upon the city. And estimates range from 500,000 to 2 million pilgrims. So the festival they're celebrating is looking back at the time when for 40 years God took care of the Israelites in the desert, providing food, providing water, providing safety after their miraculous escape from Egypt. So as a reenactment, people were to construct these simple shelters, tabernacles, like little tents, and live in them for the week of the festival. It was like, kind of like family camp, except for the RVs. Tabernacles was also a harvest festival, thanking God for another year's harvest. So you've got family camp and Thanksgiving. And some observant Jews were also praying during this time for Messiah to appear because the prophet Zechariah foretold the day when all nations would celebrate tabernacles under the kingship of Messiah in Jerusalem. So this festival, as all the Jewish festivals, carried undertones of messianic expectation. So where are all these hundreds of thousands of celebrants to go to worship. They all had to fit in the temple grounds. So here's a photo from a recent festival just to give you an idea of what the crowds might be like. And in the foreground there you can see some of the shelters. So imagine St. George is host to a huge event, uh, maybe like the senior games, which draws what, maybe 50,000 into town, something like that. Well, so think maybe more like the Super Bowl but not just 50,000 fans, not just 70 or 100,000, but multiply that maybe by 10. 
close to a million football fanatics pour into the city for a full week of festivities. They pitch their tents wherever, and each morning they all cram onto, say, the grounds at the Dixie Center. That sound wild and crazy? Yeah. So that's the scene that Jesus goes to. He shows up halfway into the week when things really get going. So Jesus was stepping into literally the largest stage on the planet. The temple complex was the crown jewel of Jerusalem, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, larger than any other temple on the planet, including the temples of, to the Roman Gre Greco gods. Yahweh's temple was unrivaled in size and magnificence. The complex footprint was 36 acres, expansive enough to hold 27 football fields. It would take you 20 minutes to walk the mile around the perimeter. Surrounding the open courtyards were vast covered hallways, colonnades, and open porches, ideal spaces for the individuals or groups to gather and pray or just catch up or listen to a great teacher. The centerpiece was, of course, the sanctuary. It towered an awesome 15 stories high. So stack three more school buildings on top of this one. That's what we're looking at. The altar was massive, standing 15 feet tall. It would pretty much fill this entire space. <laughs> this is the stage that the Jesus drama plays out on. Wall-to-wall -wall people, ritual and celebration at fever pitch, and the religious and civic powers that be wary, jealous, hostile, just waiting for the chance to silence this upstart rabbi from Galilee. Despite the risk, for three days, Jesus is teaching in the temple complex, and he generates a lot of discussion among the crowds. They're trying to make heads or tails of him. Some say, oh, he's a good, a wonderful man. He's a deceiver, a fraud. He's an exceptional teacher. He's demon-possessed. He's the prophet. He's no Messiah. He's, he's from the wrong place. Oh, he is the Messiah. Look at the miracles he performs. No, he's not the Messiah. He's from the wrong family. So it's a lively debate. Some Jesus wins over, others not so much. And definitely not the Jewish leaders in charge. So several times during the week, Jesus directly engages these leaders. A mix of influential Pharisees and wealthy Sadducees and high-ranking priests. These are the power people. Many sat on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish nation's ruling council. The Pharisees, they're the champions of the law. They were the morals police, obsessed with rule keeping. Their rabbis got their special training from the rabbis before them, from the rabbis before them, etc., etc. So they knew the ins and outs of the law, plus a bunch of other special rules. Their passion for perfection was fueled by the belief that if Israel could keep the law, flawlessly for just one day, Messiah would come. 
And then the priests, they're the champions of the temple. They were the guardians of ritual worship. The temple, not the law, was the way to God. And in Jesus' day, the high-ranking priests had a nice gig going. There was a lot of money involved, especially when they collaborated with the Roman political interests. And they were determined to keep it that way. Now, these Jewish leaders are astonished at Jesus' teaching. How can he know so much? He's just a backwater hick from the sticks. He never even went to rabbi school. How dare he? But Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. You trace your teaching authority back to Moses. My authority traces back to God. It's obvious why you don't embrace me and my teaching because you don't want to because you don't want God. That is explosive stuff. Yet Jesus never backs down. He never wavers. Instead, he actually goes on the offensive. He speaks truth to power, even at his own peril. And when I, when I read these confrontations with the powers that be, I, I, I think, oh no, Jesus, don't go there. Don't say that. Don't you know what they can do to you? So I have a story for you. When I was three, my older brother did the brotherly thing, took me to the movies to see Bambi. Mm-hmm, some of you remember that. I made it through until the part where the hunter shows up and has his sights set on Mama Deer. Watch out, Bambi! <laughs> so I screamed, ran out of the theater, just bawling. Uh, so much for movie night with my big brother ever again. <laughs> That's how these intense gospel dramas make me feel. Like, watch out, Jesus! But aren't you glad that Jesus was fearless? That he kept on mission even when it was dangerous to do so? So, and then I wonder... How often do I chicken out? Or the words to speak up for Jesus don't just, they don't come until like later when it's too late. Jesus was not intimidated and he certainly did not waver in his mission to save a broken and hostile world or to save me and you. After teaching all this teaching to the crowds and jousting with the authorities, Jesus saves the best for last. It's the final climactic day of the festival. The closing ceremony, for the, for the closing ceremony, a contingent of priests is dispatched down the slope to the pool of Siloam where they dip and fill a large golden pitcher. The trumpet fanfare announces their return, and as the procession advances through the gates and approaches up to the sanctuary, the people break out in exuberant song. Hallelujah! Praise be to the Lord God! Hosanna! 
God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Seven times the priests circle the altar until the one carrying the golden pitcher walks up the ramp and pours the water out and over the altar. And the trumpets blast again and the people shout praise to God for Yahweh has once again poured out his life-giving blessing upon the land. May he do so for yet another year of abundance. As the celebration lulls and the decibels decrease, at this most climactic, dramatic moment, on the biggest stage in the world, right on cue, Jesus seizes the moment with the most stunning declaration. And here's what the text says. Verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted out to the crowds, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures declare, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And by way of explanation, when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to those believing in him. Come to me, Jesus shouts. If anyone thirsts, whosoever will, come to me, believe in me, and I will give you abundant life-giving, soul-satisfying water that will overflow like a river from your inmost being. Wow. So let's unpack this amazing declaration a bit. First, Jesus speaks to the human condition. We are insatiably hungry and thirsty creatures. We are wholehearted, H-O-L-E, not W-H-O-L-E. We were created for relationship with our maker. Yet in our brokenness, we fill the hole in our soul with less than ultimate things. Second, Jesus points to himself as the answer. This is precisely what sets Jesus of Nazareth apart from all other religious leaders. He consistently was talking about himself, pointing to himself. Not a guide who points to the truth. I am the way and the truth. Not a guru who imparts the secrets of life. I am the life. By contrast, the law, even perfect rule-keeping, cannot give full, robust life. You'll never find thriving in duty and obedience apart from me. The temple, even the most amazing ritual and awe-inspiring worship experience cannot fill the hole in your soul apart from me. I am. I am what you hunger and thirst for. Come to me. Delight in me. Stop settling for lesser things. In your brokenness, don't fill up on less than ultimate things, whether it's religion or morality, 
accomplishment and career, entertainments and recreation, learning and education, relationships, sex, food, money, power, popularity, possessions. Not bad things necessarily, but pursuits that instead of satisfying our soul can distract and capture and even turn and twist our hearts away from God. Jesus declares, I am the one, the ultimate thing you thirst for. Don't settle. Come to me. Whosoever will, come to me. Believe in me, and I will pour out my spirit within you, my very life-giving, soul-satisfying, dynamic presence and overflowing power tabernacled within you. I don't know about you. Jesus always blows me away. And I'm blown away by Jesus and his offer. What person in their right mind would refuse or resist such an invitation? Here is Jesus revealing God, a God whose posture is one of invitation whether to the confused and undecided or even to skeptics and haters. But Jesus offers what every soul, what my soul hungers and thirsts for, himself. Will I come to Jesus or will I settle for lesser things? 